so to our film reviews on this Thursday night. Two fascinating films involving two total darlings of the art house and indie cinema. Cinema Andrea Arnold and Tilda Swinton Cow comes from Andrea Arnold, puts the lives of two dairy cows front and centre in a very unusual documentary about the mundanity of the day-to-life lives of these animals so central to global food production. And it stars the cows mainly. There's not much dialogue in it really apart from the odd moo here and there. And uh, the one we're going to start with, Memoria, from Thai director Abichat Pong Wirsat. And, and I knew this would happen. Philosophical. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. I listened to him saying his name uh, about 25 times today at high speed. Yeah. Which is not how the movie goes, but we'll come to that in a second. <laughs> Starring Tilda Swinton as Jessica, uh, who is a woman plagued by strange sounds in her head. Tara Brady, Justin McGregor uh, with me this evening. So let us go to uh, Memoria. This is an old philosophy question, I mm-hmm. suppose. Philosophy 101, really, isn't it? If it if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around to hear it, doesn't make any noise. That's at the heart that's, of this, really, Tara. That's exactly that's exactly what I thought when I saw it. And and of course, like scientifically, the answer is well, no. If there's because sound is made in the ear, it's reduced in the ear, and that very much fits with a lot of Vera Sathical's work because a lot of them they're puzzles and they put together they put lots of little thematic pieces out there for you but it's up to you to kind of find your your way through them and, th- and that's been true of his his films today all of his films mm. to date um, and if you didn't get on with any of those little puzzles before you're probably not going to get on too well um, with this one I mean what's interesting about and the, there's a few of these like really big art house directors that are they're big names at Cannes, um, like um, Zhai Zhi uh, or Zhai, um, Zhai, Zhai Chang um, from China, who does like Ashes Purest White and, and Laz, Laz, Lav Diaz from um, the Philippines. And they're these really big directors in all of their films. I mean, I think it's telling that Vera Sathikals, um he's made eight features and five of them have won major prizes at Cannes. Yeah. So th- these are these are like the really, these are the big hitters in terms of auteur cinema, mm. in, ter- in terms of art house cinema. Or, and if you're someone who doesn't really get on with art house cinema like they're they're double art house cinema yeah. they're 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 very very challenging yeah. and and very very enigmatic but i think what's interesting about all of the people i just mentioned is that all of their films have some relationship with science fiction and fantasy and and this film memoria starts out with what, what can only be described as like a, well, a jump scare about let, to, let yeah. me let me play the opening of the film but you'll be relieved to hear it's the opening 11 seconds <laughs> or 11 <laughs> seconds from the opening 7 minutes i would say uh, this is this is what we hear. Uh, we we see a kind of shadowy figure, possibly in bed. We can't really make out what's mm-hmm. on the screen, and then we hear this. And then, after about another two or three minutes, mm-hmm. car alarms start to go yeah. off, and slowly, uh, Justin, we we see the figure of Tilda Swinton rising up out of bed. I mean, that that opening sequence, it must be. Is it seven or eight minutes long with absolutely no dialogue? That bang and the sound of the car alarms. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the frames are amazing. They're the, the, these kind of portraits. And yeah, Tildesman's in the bed, all in shadow. We hear this noise. And yeah, it's seven minutes. I mean, it's eight minutes before anybody even speaks. And we just have this really long shot of her in bed getting up. And we're not even sure if she's heard the sound because she has no one to talk to about it. And it doesn't come up till much later that, oh, yeah, she did hear the sound and she wants to recreate it. Uh, and there aren't even edits inside these scenes. I think it's not till the, the third or fourth scene that there's even an edit. And it's just the camera moving once 
you know, in the middle of the scene and that's about it. So there's kind of this relationship of, uh, of sound and stillness of the image while there's kind of the, the sounds around us, the sounds of the city. I mean, the car alarm shot, they show these cars with the car alarms going off for, again, a good few minutes of just these cars in a parking lot with the alarms going off and shaking a little bit. And you just begin to disassociate with, like, that there's any plot here. Mm. Uh, and it's really a journey and an experience that's going to be through your ears and your eyes kind of simultaneously, but almost on two different levels at the same time. So and it's quite remarkable. So Vera Sathakal, just to prove that I did rehearse and try to get it on. <laughs> <laughs> into my tongue during the day. He 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 lays out his stall in that opening section, uh, mm-hmm. Tara. So he's not hiding from the nature of the film that he's making here. And that does, that opening sequence, it really does slow you down and it changes your yeah. expectations. Yeah, well, that's it's a thing with the, all the filmmakers I mentioned um, j- just just before, just as I was speaking there, they all move at a very glacial pace. They're all very, they're very, very thoughtful. And like, you know, just don't expect car crashes or car chases. You're, mm. you're not, you're not going to get any of them. Um, but you do get this like sort of very, very cerebral kind of gumshoe adventure. First of all, where she's trying to put together the sound and I, I really love that description that she gives to the engineer, which is like it's, it's like. Let, a, let me. I okay. have that. I have that <laughs> description. In fact, so she goes into a sound engineer, and she wants him to try to recreate the sound we heard there at the top. And this is, this is her guidance. I wonder if Harry, our sound engineer tonight, would be able to act on this advice. And, and then, then it shrinks. I mean, it, it probably sounds differently in my head. And there we have Tilda Swinton describing the sound that she wants recreated, Tara. Oh, she also think, says it's like a ball of concrete hitting yeah, a metal wall surrounded, surrounded by water, which is probably more guidance or maybe not. Um, but but it, it's really interesting because the, the, this is where you start getting into the idea of like what is made in your head and, and what isn't. Yeah. I heard the sound engineer she's working with is this young, flirtatious, good-looking young fellow called um, Hernan. And then we meet Hernan again or possibly a different Hernan or maybe the same Hernan but 20 years older who's now a fish scaler and and it's that idea that like is is her memory playing tricks and mm. how much how much is her has her mind manufactured and then there's all these other strange themes coming in because she has this sister who's also afflicted by some kind of mysterious ailment which is which is definitely uh, impacting on on her memory and and she doesn't necessarily remember Tilda Swinton yeah. coming and going but she remembers this strange straight incident with a stray dog um so, so so there are all these kind of ideas and and this idea as well that like somewhere in Colombia's past that even these westerners um because we should mention that take, it's all taking they're they're out of they, they're in a foreign environment all mm. the way through which adds an, another layer to it um but but that that somehow this kind of modernized country Country. There, there's the, these ancient things that they're picking up on, and there's all these kind of images. There's there's a there's an archaeological dig, and there's human remains. There, there's mushrooms. There's the fact as well that um, Tilda Swinton's character is a botanist, um, and there's all these kind of things yeah. about things that are buried. Yeah, and and, and I suppose if, as as Tara says there, as she said at the beginning, Justin, there is this kind of detective story going on in that she's trying to find out where is the sound, what is the sound, who's making. The sound is she the only one hearing it you know all of that type of thing 
But there is no linear plot here and characters appear and disappear with no introduction, no explanation of where they're gone uh, to either. So you you need somebody, Tilda Swinton is our, is going to lead us through this movie. So you need somebody who can hold the screen for well over two hours uh, with very little to say. Yeah, no, you know, she does. She has such a great expressive face and uh, it's usually quite far away because of course they're they're in these wide shots and so there's a lot of projection kind of going on and I mean Tara said it moved glacially that sounds fast for actually the speed that it <laughs> that it actually moves I mean it's just sort of there in this detective mystery you really begin to realize there's not going to be a resolution you know there's no Moriarty to be found that it's just this unfolding of I guess possibilities of a story and really it, it, it's an experience and what I was really struck by was how it made me feel about time, you know, and there's a scene in there where the older Hernan, she, he says that he doesn't dream when he, he sleeps and she says, can you show me? So he takes a nap and they just show him napping for, again, three, four, mm. five minutes. And it just completely affects your own perception of time. And at first I thought, wow, this is really slow. I'm, I'm not sure. And But by the end, I didn't even know how long the movie was anymore. I, I I had just gone yeah. on this journey with Tilda Swinton, and if you let go and join her, then I think it's just a remarkable experience. And now there are the, most of the dialogue. Well, I suppose fifty fifty. Some of well, maybe not quite fifty fifty. There's a lot of the dialogue is in Spanish. There are some mm. scenes in English as well. So we have one of the scenes in English here where she's speaking with a friend of hers. Again, a woman who just appears almost out of nowhere, <laughs> and and uh, it's a friend called Agnes, played by Jean Balabar. They're sitting on a bench and they have a conversation. This is the conversation. I think I'm going crazy. You are. Me too. It's not the worst thing to be. I've composed a poem. A poem of the sleepless night. Beyond the petals and once furious wings, the air gasps at its fading shadow. Yes, that is it. Uh, that's uh, Tilda Swinton there and Jean Balivar in a scene from Memoria. He is asking a lot of the viewer here, Justin. Is he is he justified in asking it, and does he deliver? I, you know, I I I was once locked in an art gallery for five hours by Marina Abramovich, uh, willingly, and she gave you a one hour sort of course on how to prepare for the five hours in in the art gallery. And I would have liked a little. Uh, pre-knowledge of, I think, what I was going to go into. Once I realized what was going on, I think the film absolutely delivers on providing this experience. But I almost, it's almost outside cinema. I mean, it's more like you're dreaming or you're watching someone else's dream. I mean, when it's all over, you know, you have this memory of watching it, but it's more like remembering a dream. It's, it is just a sort of remarkable experience. So on that level, yeah, he pulls off this kind of remarkable um, achievement. Um, but it's almost outside 
you know, right. the realm. I mean, it's almost beyond art house. You know, it's doing its own thing, and it's this kind of Buddhist meditation. And yes, on that level, it works brilliantly. I, I was kind of surprised. We're not obviously going to say what it is. We are given a, a reason, or yeah. we are given a, a, a where the sound and how the sound is being created, which I kind of really cocked my eyebrow at. And I, I, I wondered should I have been left not knowing it, and I did wonder about mm. that kind that revelation without saying mm. what the revelation is. Um, I, well, it 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 worked for me because I mean it's really an experience. It's all it's it. If ever it was all about the journey and not, and not the destination, mm. it's 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 this film. Um, I I think um it's 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 very very. I mean it's very interesting kind of tension because it has this kind of very impactful sound design and then it does have impactful images and that impactful ending and then it has one of Tilda Swinton's I suppose most like subtle performances. It's a very it, it it's it's made of the most like delicate movements and it reminds you of like what a great collaborator she's been all through her career going back to her years with um Derek Jarman. Um I, I think um I mean I, I was I was quite on board with the ending but then like I really enjoyed the sort of more the matter parts yeah. of um uh, Uncle Boomy who can recall his past lives where where you got this like red eyed you know, um, monkey monster and 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 the, these kind of fantastic, sort of like a talking fish. One and, of Aristotle's uh, previous movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which is the one that won the Palme d'Or. Yeah. And um, and I like you know. I, so I enjoyed the kind of matter things that were in there. So I I was quite yeah, good so with stars the stars from you, Tara. I uh, I would give it five. It's it's a, it's a real experience, but it's it's certainly not for you. Have to be in the right frame. Uh, and I do mind. have to say, when this when the credits came up, I couldn't leave the credits because there was this amazing rain sound all over the credits and. Yeah. I sat listening to that, not not really reading the credits, just listening to the sound. What? How did it work for you, Justin Stars? I don't even know if stars matter for this yeah. film. I mean, it, it is fine, but it is yeah. It's put on your slippers and you know it's like sitting on the porch. Get really comfortable, and like you say, yeah, you won't leave. I just listened to that rain too, and that was the headspace that he'd taken me to. I mean, that's a remarkable achievement. Yeah. Okay. So there we go. Uh, Memoria. First of our two films up for review this evening, and we're in the world of the unusual, certainly this evening. Um, and and Andrea Arnold takes two dairy cows, a mother called Luma, and her calf, who isn't given a name. I'm very sad about great character actor this young calf <laughs> as the subjects of her documentary, Andrea Arnold's documentary. It's called Cow. No narration, very little talking, and what talking is there's kind of off camera almost. Uh, film scene from the cows. The cow's perspective. What kind of perspective are we getting here, uh, Justin? Yeah, no, the camera is, you know, right there at kind of Luna's, uh, Luma's uh, uh, eye level, eye, eye height. It's right beside her when, she, when she's birthing. We're either right there at the, the end of giving birth or we're right there with her face. And we really, mm. like you say, we see things kind of from her perspective. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the humans are almost seen always from kind of the shoulders down, like that they're kind of above her and she only sees their, their kind of boots and midriffs. So we mm. really see all of this world that she's in, this kind of factory dairy farm that she's in, we see those movements in the places that she's going and we do see her reactions, you know, her reactions to when her calf is taken away from her, to, to when she's being milked, to, to watching the other cows give birth. We really are down with her and then with her calf as well. You know, when she's looking for her calf, her calf is looking for her and, and we're right there, you know, with the calf. So it really has this amazing point of view where, yeah. you know, the human, yeah, the human babble is, is almost that it's all really about what is the cow doing what's it going through and what's its its life like 
Do we learn? Uh, do we do we learn characteristics? Uh, the characteristics of these cows. Do the cows have personalities, or are we kind of imposing them on our on them ourselves? Do you think? No, I I don't think so. I mean, she has a very definite personality, and it's interesting. One of the things conversations quite late on in the film, where they the her you know the the farmhands are talking about how she's become very protective, very overprotective as, as she gets older, and because she's had calves taken from her mm-hmm. time and time again, yeah. and she's. Be- across the field to no avail. Yeah, and 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 we see that thing, and she and she's in the the most important thing task in the world to her, and she still interrupts it because a little cow is about to you know fall fall down into a trough, and she goes out of her way and kind of rounds up the the, the little calf and, and brings it back. Um, so huge he, maternal yeah, instinct. Yeah, you have so, to say. so so you you can you can see that like she's she's a very caring animal, and she's she's also a very sad animal. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I and it's it's very interesting because a lot of like I think I believe the term is um uh vegan movies like they've they kind of a compound word which are is a really big genre on Netflix and there's a lot of there's a lot of movies that that are either from a vegan perspective or that are about they're about industrial mm. farming they're about the kind of things that go into the really horrible things that go into meat or the really horrible things that go into dairy and uh, you know and the, and this has become a, a very kind of popular kind of film but, the, but this film is 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 completely different to, to most of those documentaries because you know there's no no facts or figures here it's an entirely experiential thing and the other thing the other thing about it Justin is that the, the way the, the farmhands and those that are on this dairy farm treat the animals they treat the animals let's put aside what the ultimate goal from the animal mm-hmm. is but they treat the animals with respect mm-hmm. with great care they clearly love the animals in, in, in as much as they, they can and, and they really do look after them there's no sense that the animals are maltreated no. on a day to day basis no, that, that that's definitely there, that feeling. I mean, when the vet comes, though, you know, they, they're, they're talking about what's going on with Luma and how she's been and they're always kind of praising them like, oh, good girl and yeah. come over here. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that kind of very loving behaviour and it seems very at odds with the cow's experience of what it's going through, yeah. this repetitive r- routine. And yeah, I think we see uh, her her fifth and sixth calves uh, being born. So yeah, this kind of endless pregnancy and this endless kind of cycle of giving birth and then losing the cows and giving milk for 10 months and then yeah. and then getting pregnant again. Yeah, but while while we do see that care, I did notice down, you know, one of the, one of the vet's questions was, uh, is she coming to milk again? Obviously, mm-hmm. we this cow is here for milk. This cow is here for calves because the next and another visit the cow, the vet says the main focus here is to get her cycling again. Obviously, to get her menstrual cycle mm-hmm. going again so mm-hmm. that she can conceive again. I mean, there's no doubt that these mm-hmm. animals are there for breeding and milk purposes. That is their sole purpose in life. Yeah, oh. and 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 at the end, so, so, something else. I mean, it's, it's yeah. yeah, they exist entirely for. Human, we know it's heading one direction when when she's no use. We know there's only one thing going to happen. Well I, well, I think that's that's the real tragedy of the film is that this isn't one of those horrible like documentaries that you see on it. This is like the best case scenario yeah. for dairy cows. This is like she's allowed to gamble in fields. Many many cattle never see a field. Um, she you know she she's allowed she's she, you know she lives in a big roomy byre with yeah. other cows. She has some companionship. She's not. She's not shut off into like a little stall. This is the best case scenario for for dairy cows, and it's appalling. It, it, there's no dignity to it, and it, and it's boring. It's awful and repetitive. Yeah. And you know, we'd often we'd often ask in the documentary situation. You know, how how does the how does the director get the trust of the subject mm-hmm. of the documentary? There's an amazing scene where Luma is looking directly mm-hmm. into the camera. Now, bear with me while I play a clip 
of Luma. You've got to think this is a cow staring directly into the camera. I think I can speak cow language for her, her bellows here. <laughs> Now, I don't know if you get it in the sound, but the aggression in her eyes, because she's not an aggressive animal, Tara, but that moo is directly at the camera saying, get lost. Yeah. No, there's, de- there's definitely like the sense that you no, know, she's been intruded on. And and that's, it goes back to that question. Like there's a definite sense of personality. She has a definite presence. You know, it's, she, they're not presenting, oh, this is just a typical cow. Mm. The, like it's the idea that any cow is not typical. Every cow has has some, has something to, to them that's that's their own kind of essence. And I think I think that's incredibly sad to kind of to wrestle with. And I did, you know, maybe I'm stretching the point a bit too much, but it did strike me at certain points watching this that they were there for their breeding purposes and for their milk I couldn't help thinking of The Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. and the kind of story that it's telling and it did draw it seemed to me mm-hmm. I, I was drawing parallels oh yeah it'd be terrible if it happened to humans but we're doing it to animals all the time Justin sorry oh yeah no uh, absolutely like watching the this kind of factory process it makes you think about your own life and mm. you know your own routines and the things that you do and you know how many of them are chosen and how many of them are imposed and you know you start thinking about free will while watching this you know this cow uh, and the nature of your own existence like it really is quite remarkable and yeah where where is that luma communicating with us or us mm. projecting onto luma like that that boundary really gets you know blurred in this uh, yeah, with this kind was, of point of view another scene where we see luna and and we're seeing we're getting into this idea that she just has this machine mentality that's how she treated then you see i saw this the shot of an airplane going over above and i thought who's in the airplane and what <laughs> what mentality or mundane life are they, are they leading but there is a shocking ending which we won't give away mm-hmm. but we kind of know where it's heading but yeah. it's quite shocking when it's, it comes it's absolutely it's horrific when it comes um, again it's, it's just the mundanity yeah. of it the simplicity of it it's really interesting to look at where it fits with, with the rest of Andrea Arnold's work because of course that's what she does so well she takes these kind of very protean everyday routine lives and then suddenly mm. finds the melodramatic moments in, in the rhythm of those lives and she, she's done that here um, although it, like it's 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 a different speed to the kind of human melodrama and it's, it's a completely kind of yeah. different um, it's a different kind of texture to the kind of human melodrama she has but it's but it's, it's a really fascinating film and I think it's very interesting she hasn't done a lot of interviews for the film I know because I asked for one uh, but, but because I think she, it's very much a film that speaks for itself like it's yeah. and, 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 and again an amazing experience in the cinema like really really kind of amazing and impactful well, like, if, if you were told you're going to see a film about two cars and there's very little dialogue in it you'd be asking really yeah <laughs> I, it's, it's, a, it's a great counterpoint as well at the moment because we're in the middle of this kind of awards season and run up to Oscars <laughs> and there's all these really big showy performances and everybody's like really you know using all their acting muscles and here's a cow that like outdoes them all Luma for best leading actor certainly (laughs) for me Uh, stars from you on this one Tara I'd have to give it five you're on a five so you double five yeah double five what are you saying Justin I, I, I thought the first 40 minutes and the last five ten minutes were absolutely spectacular I do think trying to show repetition on screen it did feel a little bit long so I, I went as low as four and a half but oh. the best parts are uh, are uh, amazing how could you do that to Luma you, you're such a cruel <laughs> person <laughs> Justin McGregor and Tara Brady our reviewers on this Thursday evening Memoria and Cow both on limited release both will be at the IFI from tomorrow Cow will also be at the Lighthouse and Palos Cinemas 
The weekend after next brings the Classics Now Festival to Dublin, both in person and online events involved there. Involved there rather. And on Monday, we heard from classicist Charlotte Higgins about the life of some of the great iconic Greek women, from Helen of Troy to Penelope. Tonight, it's Rome's turn, and my next guest, Daisy Dunn, has written about the Roman poet Catullus and the uncle and nephew duo Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. It's thanks to those Plinys, the Younger in particular, that we know about what happened in the Bay of Naples in 79 AD when what up uh, up to that point most people thought it was a mountain revealed its true identity as a volcano when it erupted covering nearby towns and the surrounding countryside in molten lava the mountain in question was Mount Vesuvius Daisy what's really interesting about this uh, particular the eruption of Mount Vesuvius as much as anything else and the Pliny's uh, in the book that you as, as you write about them it's where we are in terms of Roman history the Republic is gone uh, and, and the Empire, what's the state of play with the Empire as Vesuvius spills herself or itself out over the countryside of Italy and in, around, in and around Naples? Well, Vesuvius erupts just when the Empire is kind of at its height. People talk about this being um, sort of the high empire, the high Roman Empire. And Pliny the Younger, who is lucky enough to survive the eruption that kills his uncle, he goes on and becomes a senator and he lives under lots of different emperors. There's a whole string of them kind of culminating in Emperor Trajan, who's remembered as one of the greats, really, of the time. So it's a really interesting time politically, a lot of change going on and life really kind of at at its height in some ways. And the Plinys themselves, how how well placed were they? What kind of family are we talking about? They were called equestrians. So they're kind of like the second rung down in society. So quite do. Um, and Pliny the Elder is the uncle, maternal uncle of Pliny the Younger. They grow up quite comfortably off. Pliny the Younger has lots of villas scattered around Italy. Uh, quite a nice life, really. And, and he he actually Pliny the Younger ended up living their uncle uncle and nephew, but Pliny the Younger ended up living with the uncle because of his his own family situation. Well, he was staying with him when the volcano erupted. So Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger originally came from Como, Lake Como, up in, in northern Italy. But Pliny the Elder became admiral of one of the fleets, the Roman fleet that was right down in the Bay of Naples. And he was there just at the critical moment when the volcano began to erupt and Pliny the Younger happened to be staying there with, with the uncle and with his mother as well. And it was Pliny's mother who actually spotted this kind of strange cloud, she described, rising in the distance. And they weren't quite sure what it was. Mm. And it was out of curiosity initially that Pliny the Elder sort of wanted to get close to it and kind of he had this whole fleet at his disposal. So he went out across the water, hoping to sort of make notes on it and write about it. And then he kind of received a note from a friend who needed rescuing at the same time as it, t- it kind of turned into a bit of a rescue mm. mission. But unfortunately for Pliny the Elder, it was you know a little bit too risky. Yeah, I mean, because it is amazing as you describe it there. We are really talking about we refer to them as historians, but that, that's that's the journalist with a with a nose for the scoop and somebody who is not afraid to go right into the middle of the action because this is where it's happening. I have to be on the spot. I actually, I, I I really have to see it. And it was Pliny the Elder who was the braver in that respect. Yeah. 
Definitely so. So Pliny the Elder, he, he's famous really for writing this great encyclopedia of natural history. He had this huge burning desire to record every single little bit of knowledge that had been found to date so that it would never be forgotten. So when he saw this thing kind of erupting in the distance, he was really desperate to get some notes on it. And he'd written about all kinds of volcanoes around the world. But he'd never included Vesuvius in the kind of volcano section of his encyclopedia of natural history because presumably he didn't know it was a volcano. So he really wanted to get close to the action, see what's going on, probably add a paragraph or two, we can imagine, to the natural history. And he said to his nephew, why don't you come with me? We'll have a look. But Pliny the Younger is incredibly virtuous. And he's 17 years old at this time. He said, no, 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 you've given me some work to do. I'd rather stay home with my mum and carry uh, on doing my Sorry, go ahead. I, oh, have I lost you there? I'm, I'm just wondering, you, you're saying that he, he decided to go home to his mum. He sounds as if he was, was he, was he shirking it when he did that? I think he was just incredibly studious. He was rather straight-laced. He's quite a serious young man. He remained quite a serious man in his life, but he's kind of lovable for it at the same time. And if, if you think about it, if he had gone with him, we'd never know anything that happened because actually Pliny the Younger wrote these two letters mm. describing the course of the eruption. And they are the only eyewitness accounts we have of the eruption of Vesuvius. So really, I think Pliny's nerdiness, we've got to be thankful for it. Pliny, the, Pliny, it was, it was Pliny the Elder who was who was so busy. He was carried around in a chair all the time, wasn't he? He 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 literally was writing at every moment of every day, watching what he was seeing, jotting down from notes that he'd taken elsewhere. He he really couldn't bear to not record what he saw. Pliny the Elder was a complete workaholic. I think before the word was invented, he was addicted to work. He would even, he resented having to have a bath because that was the only <laughs> time that he couldn't actually have his notebooks and be writing away. But even when he's having dinner, he's got someone dictating to him, he's writing notes. He he kind of, even he, he described sleep really as a waste of time. He said to be alive is to be awake. And so he'd sleep as little as possible, literally a couple of hours a night. And the rest of the time he'd get up. And if it was cold, he had... Uh, a sort of special pair of gloves that he'd put on so he can continue writing and not freeze to death. And natural history, as well as the, the, obviously the political uh, events that were happening and the, the, the events like Vesuvius erupting, which was a huge news event uh, at the time. Um, natural history, however, was very important to him as well. What were his views on the oyster? He, he wrote on all kinds of things, but oyster kind of comes back to him a lot when he's writing about um, seafood in general. It seemed to be a great evil in in his opinion um oysters in particular he he hated the sight of oysters sitting on a bed of what he called snow but we'd probably interpret that as ice because he thought it was completely unnatural that you should combine something from the seabed with something that's typically found on a mountaintop and that's kind of breaking the sort of natural boundaries of nature in his eyes so he he really really hated it he he was suspicious of oysters he thought that seafood in general kind of only made us spoiled you know we should live more simply on our kitchen gardens and grow our own fruit and veg and he's quite sort of ahead of his mm. time in that respect but he kind of saw it as completely unnecessary we should be getting these oysters and eating luxurious food and getting pearls and putting jewelry all over ourselves you know this kind of went against his very sort of simple tastes what was the story with Vesuvius at the time? You know, I said, oh, everybody thought it was a mountain up until this point, until the, the, the terrible eruption uh, happened. But was, were there any, was there any inkling that, in fact, there might be something rumbling underneath the surface? Well, 
interestingly, about 16 years before it erupted in AD 79, there was a really disastrous earthquake. And we now know that was the beginning of the magma sort of starting to move up inside Vesuvius. But at the time, they didn't connect those two tragedies at all. Um, the, the earthquake actually caused the lots of Pompeii had to be rebuilt because of it. Uh, they they just they saw Vesuvius very much as being the kind of the pinnacle of uh, the Bay of Naples fertility. They they covered it in grapevines. The whole thing was green. There's actually a wall painting that survives from Pompeii and it shows Vesuvius in its own time. And it's just verdant and green and it has Bacchus, the god of wine, there at the bottom kind of overlooking the, the growth of all these vineyards. And they just saw it as this fantastic, you know, fertile mountain. And even sort of 20 years after the eruption of Vesuvius, things started to grow back again. And people kind of got on with their lives again. You know, they, they, they continued to embrace Vesuvius as being this wonderful, fertile mountain rather than being you know, a source of, de- of deadly danger, potentially. And, and Pliny the Younger then, obviously, as you said, the, the, the uncle was lost uh, because of the eruption and because of his kind of daring do, you'd have to say, in terms of the rescue mission and all of that type of thing. But the Younger then was the nephew. He inherited all of Pliny the Elder's notebooks. Do we get a lot of writing from Pliny the Younger subsequent to that which could be ascribed to, in a large in large part to the the research and the work previously done by his uncle. Well, I think when Pliny the Younger inherits the notebooks, his overarching kind of desire really is to keep the legacy of his uncle alive, but also to meet up to it. He wants to earn a legacy of his own. So he kind of he, he doesn't become a natural science writer himself. He pursues a much more urban career as a, as a lawyer and as a senator. But in his free time, he does his best to keep the spirit of his uncle alive. And he's really into kind of making his own wine and looking at his fruit trees. And he says, you know, it's a real source of pleasure for him to kind of relax after all the busyness of, of Rome by going to these villas and looking at his fruit trees and really taking nature uh, in you know as much as possible and breathing the air, um, so he's quite a different character from the uncle. Mm. But I think you kind of see that element or within him. You know, this kind of lives on with him. This kind of respect and this understanding that nature has to be respected. And that if you revere nature and you respect nature, you can get something out of it in return. I'm wondering too. You mean you you said that really that the Roman Empire was at its height at the at the time at, at which Vesuvius erupted. Did did things start to turn at that point and does Pliny because it was Pliny the Younger was left at this age does he document that in any way or was he not interested in that type of political history? He is interested in history I mean he records what we have from him are these hundreds of letters that he left behind and what's interesting is he lived under a really really foul emperor as he presents him called Emperor Domitian and so you you have sort of insight into some of the chaos um, and the sort of injustices as Pliny presents it under his rule. And then you have these better years under the rule of Emperor Trajan. And so you kind of see this kind of light and dark. Mm. And it seems to that Rome, the way it was, was kind of quite dependent on who was ruling at that time. And obviously I think Pliny was was very, very nervous about writing anything negative about Domitian while he was alive. So he had to wait for him, for him to die before he could actually write all this down. 
Um, but thankfully he did. So we, we get quite an interesting insight. Yes, I would have thought writing negatively about a Roman emperor would not be a smart career move, possibly not a smart life move in any way, <laughs> shape or form. Daisy, thanks for speaking with us this evening. Thank you. That's Daisy Dunn. And Daisy will be in an online conversation with Vincent Woods next Saturday, this January the 22nd, 7.15pm. And you can find out full information on classicsnow.ie. The news broke late yesterday evening that Ronnie Spector, the singer who defined the sound of mid-century girl groups as the front woman of the Ronettes, as the Ronettes had died at the age of 78. She formed the Ronettes in 1957 with her elder sister, Estelle Bennett, and her cousin, Nedra Talley. Estelle arranged an audition with Phil Spector, who signed the group, and they then had their first hit, 1963, number two in the US, number four in the UK, and immediately recognisable as this. First big hit for the Ronettes, uh, 1963, Be My Baby, and that was shortly after they had signed with Phil Spector. Uh, Ronnie Spector, as she then became, she married Phil in 1968, but he became controlling, paranoid and abusive during the relationship. We might hear more about that shortly. But among the musicians paying tribute yesterday to uh, Ronnie Spector was Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys saying, I loved her voice so much and she was a very special person, a dear friend. This just breaks my heart. Ronnie's music and spirit will live forever. Zara Hedeman is with us this evening uh, to look at the career uh, of Ronnie Spector. Uh, before we get into Ronnie Spector, she was Veronica Bennett. Um uh, what what had she what had they achieved and what had she achieved before that uh, meeting with with Phil Spector or, or did that just change the game totally Zara yeah, well, beforehand, um, I mean, the Ronettes, they formed when she, when Veronica was only 14 and her de- passion for performance really developed from day one. Her, her sister Estelle and their cousin Nedra would perform regularly in her grandmother's living room to family members. And that's where their comfort in singing really developed. But up until 1963, there was many attempts for them to kind of try and launch their career. They signed to Colpix Records in 1961. They had a few singles with them, but nothing really came to it to, to success commercially. I mean, they were loved on the New York scene. They had like a regular gig in the Peppermint Lounge. They would play regular kind of local dances and bar mitzvahs, but it really was um, Be My Baby that catapulted everything. And when you think that the Ronettes really were a band for a decade between 1957 and 67 but their success and their popularity was condensed to a very brief yeah. period between 63 and 65 um, that, that first audition with Phil Spector um, 
Estelle went looking for it, uh, however she achieved it. Mm. But it, it was Ronnie's voice, I think, that really made the impact on him. <laughs> It was, and there's stories of when Phil Spector heard um, Ronnie singing Why Do Fools Fall In Love, which is the song they auditioned with. Seemingly, he jumped out of his uh, chair and proclaimed, that's the voice I've been looking for. And as you heard there, we all know Be My Baby. It's such a towering song. And I really don't think that there's anyone who could have, you know, competed and even um, triumphed over those big, bashing drums and the the infectious instrumentation of it. Yeah, but as I said in the, in the introduction, iconic. yeah, which obviously she had the voice to do it, as you say. Um, I, I mentioned in the introduction, yeah, they, they married, she married Phil Spector in 1968, but that certainly went mm. awry. So he was responsible both for, the, for their success, how, how vital or how mm. integral was he to their, I suppose, demise as well? Oh, he was solely responsible, it could be said. Um, As much as, as you said there, he was integral to building their sound. By 1964, I mean, what I find really fascinating with the Ronettes is the camaraderie they had with the Beatles, which isn't as well kind of documented as it should be. But they toured with them um, in 1964 in London in the UK. But by 1966, when the Beatles came to America, Phil Spector refused to let Ronnie join the Ronettes on that tour. He also would refuse to put out singles by the Ronettes. And it was mainly because of his insecurity in the Ronettes becoming a big band and Ronnie essentially then leaving him Um, so that is why as well there's stories of Ronnie literally being held captive in their mansion Mm. in California she escaped from the house barefoot in 1972 as well so that is kind of um, a testament to the the control that Phil Spector had in them and the responsibility yeah. he had for their demise. Yeah, and we know, of course, that Phil Spector, convicted of the murder of Lana Clarkson, died in prison last mm. year on, on January the 16th. Did, did uh, Ronnie uh, find, Veronica, did she find happiness subsequent? Because she stuck with the marriage for a long time, despite the fact that it was so abusive. Mm, Yeah, she left in 72 and she did try to reclaim her career afterwards. I mean, she tried to reform the Ronettes in 73. That didn't really have the same impact as the original incarnation. Her solo career as a recording artist never really took off, which is really sad, especially Mm. because of her voice um, and her personality. But she did find happiness. She married her manager, Jonathan Greenfield, in 1982 and they remained together until she died uh, yesterday. Yeah, so there is the, there was a happy ending there eventually. I, I always worry mm. about asking this, particularly around female artists, you know, but the, the, the dark eye makeup and the bouffant hair, which was very important, certainly early on. Was that image a, a vital part of the Ronettes? Did it remain so when, when they got into the Phil Spector years? Oh, of course, because as well, the Ronettes, their fashion really emulated this style on the streets at the time, as opposed to the very kind of pristine and polished and um, kind of classic American look of the kind of late 50s and 60s. And then that um, sartorial influence, we all saw come back in the mid 2000s with Amy Winehouse, of course, yeah. who, as it's impossible to reincarnate or uh, emulate Ronnie Spector's voice, I do think that Amy Winehouse was the closest that we we ever kind of got to a second coming of Ronnie Spector. Um, obviously that kind of look as well in the 60s gave uh, Ronnie Spector a bit of a bad yeah. girl edge, which I think then translated to, you know, people like Joey Ramone and the Misfits really towards the Ronettes, which is how their influence 
really kind of surpassed American pop into like punk and rock, which was so integral to, to her enduring uh, influence. All right. So you, you've kind of given me her legacy there and her influence on, on the generations that came immediately afterwards and, and subsequently as well. Baby, I love you. We'll finish up with uh, Zara. Where did this come in the, in the hit machine of the Renettes? Well, this had the uh, the hard task of following Be My Baby as the next single. Um, and it does kind of emulate that big drum beat as well. Um, the success of this song wasn't as big as Be My Baby, of course, but it was then later covered by the Ramones in the 70s. So it still had a lasting impact. OK, that's Sarah Hedeman. Thanks for being with us this evening, Sarah. That's Sarah Hedeman remembering Ronnie Spector, who died yesterday. 